All right, so we're going to be bouncing around a little bit again today. We are in the middle of just, uh, it was going to be two weeks, but I think we're going to actually do three weeks of um, just some vision casting and trying to rally us around who we are as a church and where we're headed in, in this year and um, in the years to come. And so we just feel like January is a good time to kind of reorient ourselves uh, around kind of our identity and our culture here uh, so that we can just understand how, how do we move forward. And it's especially important right now because we've had so many um, new families come in the, last, uh, in the past year. And so I know that we do things, um, some, in some ways what we do is very typical, and in other ways um, it's not. And so uh, we want to we wanna just spend some time in that. And so uh, would, you, would you pray with me as we begin this morning? Father, another time we come before you, we ask for your blessing and your help. Lord, I pray that these words that I would speak would not be man's words, but God, that it would be reflective of who you are, and that it would point to Jesus. Lord, help us to be faithful, not only in speaking, but in the hearing, in our worship of you, in Jesus' name, amen. So, last week, we talked about just kind of how, how do we form ministry? How do we think through ministry? And we came up with, um, we talked about just how these four things are things that inform kind of how we function as a church family. And so last week, we talked primarily about identity, that we have to know who we are and who we are becoming. And that is foundational. That is the most critical thing in any church because that informs everything else. And so when we think through, like, how do, we, how do we function with kids' ministry? Well, that changes based on who we see ourselves as. Because if those children are just kids who come to the same church or the same organization as the rest of us, then that, that would um, say something specific about how do we volunteer in children's ministry or how does that shape. But that changes when we see those kids as our spiritual nieces and nephews and grandchildren. Right? It, it changes. It changes how we think about them and how we function as a family and the culture that we want to develop. Um, we, have, we have people in, a, in our church family who are unable to come and gather with us physically on Sunday mornings for various reasons. And how we function as a church um, around that and what we do in that changes based on how we view them. If what we do is we see, oh, those are people who, who used to come to church here, used to come to this service, but now um, they're in a particular, like an assisted living home or something like that. That's a, um, maybe it's a person that attended a Bible study with me or one time was in a Sunday school class with me or I used to sit near and worship. Well, then that informs how we feel about going and visiting them. Because you might think like, well, I don't know, I don't want to bother them. I'm sure they have other people who would want to go and see them. I'm sure, um, I'm sure that they're, they're probably fine. But that changes drastically if you see that person not as the person who was in a Sunday school class with you, but as your spiritual grandmother. Because now if they're your grandmother, well now... There's a sense of responsibility. I, my grandmother lives in, a, in an assisted living facility and, um, you know, down in Iowa. And when I go and visit her, I don't worry about if I'm bothering her or not, right? I don't worry about it. Now, I know 100% that I am bothering her. That's not the issue at hand. The issue is I don't care because she's my grandmother. 
And the, the last time I went down there to visit her, like I had to pound on doors for somebody to let me in because it was after hours, but I was driving through, like I was, this is it, like she lives t- uh, like nine hours away from me, like I'm driving through, like I'm going to see my grandmother or I'm going to get arrested and one of those two things is going to happen, right? And so that kind of, that, that posture as a church family, it, it changes when we know that we are God's family and when we're God's family on mission, and we say that this, this is not an identity that we just made up out of thin air, right? It's the identity that was given to us by Christ, that he has claimed us. And we looked up First uh, Peter 2.9, that God has formed for himself a people, that we are his people. Once we were not a people, but now we are God's people, that he is our God. And we are his people, we are his family. And a critical part of forming that identity is is to make sure that the culture then that we are cultivating here is good soil for that identity to grow. Right again, we, last week we talked about a, a garden illustration and saying, I can identify what I want, that I want a garden, but if the environment that I'm cultivating for that garden is on the dark side of the house where it gets no rain and no sun, where there's, it's full of weeds and, and rocky soil, then I can say that it's a garden all I want. And I can plant as many seeds as I want. But it will not be what it should be. Because the soil isn't healthy. Because the garden, the culture of the garden is unhealthy. And it's very tempting for churches to skip this step or to undervalue it. We might get the identity piece, but then we always want to talk about the methods and like, well, what are we doing? But we need to know that it's important and it's valuable and it's worth the time. We mentioned for the, our community garden out here and all of the work that takes place. We have several people um, who go out and just do all kinds of work to get it ready so that people can come and plant seeds and have a little plot um, to garden. Cultivating that space is critical and it's time consuming and it doesn't it's not really flashy Because you don't get to like carry in big cucumbers or big tomato plants or anything like that Like you're just it's a lot of times. It's just hard work That people often forget about but it's critical And so we put a lot of time and energy into cultivating a healthy culture And just like our identity that was given to us by Christ through God's word, we aren't making this up. The whole idea of scripture is that we are God's people. We exist as God's people. And in the New Testament, he talks about we are kingdom people. We live differently. We live as ambassadors of Christ. And so our culture here should be the culture of the kingdom. And so we look to what Jesus says about the kingdom to understand the culture that we want to cultivate here. And so as we just go through these, I'm just going to go through them relatively quickly. But these are the statements, the sayings, the things that Jesus says about the kingdom that we say that. We want that here. We want to be mindful of cultivating that culture here. And I think as we do this, having come off of um, a year in the book of Acts, hopefully some of the stories that you remember from Acts will pop into your head and see that this was the culture of the early church. So the first, the first characteristic of the kingdom culture is that the kingdom of God works upside down. 
And by this we mean it is, it is countercultural, right? It, it doesn't make sense to the world. The way the kingdom functions does not make sense to the world. And it doesn't make sense to the world because it is not of the world, right? When being questioned by Pilate, Jesus said to him, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. So Jesus is explaining to Pilate, like, hey, this is why. Like, if, if, I, if my kingdom were here, because Pilate wants to know, are you a king and what is this kingdom that you have? And he's like, look, if my kingdom was about this world, then all the people, the thousands of people that you saw gathering around me, following me, they would be fighting right now. They would be storming the gates to rescue me and deliver me. But he says, my kingdom is not of this world. And so it's not going to make sense. And Christians get off course when we think the kingdom of God should function the way the world functions. And so we take the best practices of our businesses and our politics, and we add Jesus to them, just kind of like a, a Jesus flavoring. We sprinkle in some of the things that he said, some of the things that he values, some of his teachings, some certain beliefs, but we kind of mesh them in to our worldview, and then we get the culture that we want to form. But the kingdom of God doesn't work that way. The kingdom of God is upside down. Think about how Jesus spoke about leadership. Like, even in churches, there was such a movement and in the church to say, hey, and I remember this, in seminary, I got taught this. Like, hey, if you want to find leaders for your church, you need to look to the community and see who's leading in the community. Because if they're business leaders, if they're strong business leaders and strong political leaders and strong neighborhood leaders, then they'll be good leaders in the church. There's a problem with that. Jesus flips it upside down and says it's not the case. Right? And it's not just Jesus. Like all throughout Scripture, think back to when King David is selected, that man looks to the outside, but God looks at the heart. Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 1, where he says, like, consider yourselves your own calling, brothers and sisters. Like not many of you were considered wise or noble or powerful, which is a little bit of a backhanded compliment. Right? He's like, look at you. Like this is who God used. Right? And that's, that's the idea of it. And, and we even think about, remember in Acts, when they stood before them, and Peter and John stand before them, and they said they could tell that they were common, uneducated men. That is how God works. And it is not the way the world works. Jesus says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The, the Christian church, especially in our country, has been gripped by this, of trying to find the people who are the, the best, the strongest leaders, and the, um, and according to the world standards, the best speakers, the, the most winsome, the ones with most charisma. And, and we have looked around, we've seen the effects of that. What we should be doing is looking at the heart. 
And so when we look for shepherds here, in fact, today we're going to be voting to welcome in three new elders. The congregation is going to vote on that today. And when we're looking for elders, we're looking for those who lead by becoming the least. Those who lead by serving. Ones who do not seek a title and authority, but who seek responsibility. And that they see that responsibility as becoming the servant of all. That's the upside-down kingdom. I mean, you think about how um, we interact with the world. And how the world, what makes sense to the world is you fight fire with fire. What the world knows is that if if this um, viewpoint or this cultural battle is taking place and they're fighting against us, then we need to fight back in a similar way. And the world justifies sinful attitudes and behavior with the sins of others. The classic, like, well, he hit me first. And so this view of like, I, my actions are dependent on what you are doing to me. And this has been one of the clearest and saddest areas of this, of where we don't understand the upside down kingdom. Because people who say that they belong to Jesus are being found to say all kinds of horrible things, dismissive of hurt and hardened toward their neighbor, all justified by the view that they are right, as if being right has ever been a license to be unloving. Because Jesus said, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Which is a hard saying that we get to deal with when we go into the Sermon on the Mount, but Peter gives some clarification. He says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. Or Paul says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It's upside down. If you want to defeat your enemies, love them. If you want to overcome evil, do good. It doesn't make sense to the world, but it's the way the kingdom functions. And in fact, it's how the kingdom functions even in an upside down way of how we find our very life. There is a whole bent now, as we've seen this in the, in the world of self-discovery and discovering who you really are and you determining who you really are. The world worships self-improvement and self-discovery and self-help. And really all it is is anything that will help me succeed in my own plans, my own desires. And there's even a view that if religion or spirituality can be a part of helping you do that, well then so be it. But ultimately, the root of it is still the same. That if you want to find meaning, if you want to find joy and happiness, if you want to find your true self, then look within yourself and put yourself first. But Jesus says, if you want to find your life, then you must lose it. It's upside down. It's uncomfortable. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. These are difficult sayings. 
And so then we, we, our mind always goes to some kind of objection. Well, does that mean that we never um, exercise authority? Does that mean that we never, that Christians should never get involved in, in worldly things like politics? Or does it mean that we can't learn anything from the business world or from you know, how people function out there? These, these are not, this is not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is that first we have to have a foundational cultural understanding that the kingdom of God is upside down. That the last become first. That if you want to have authority, then become the servant of all. That if you want to overcome evil, overcome it with good. It's going to flip everything. And we need to be prepared for that and seek that. To seek the kingdom that Jesus has for us. Because we've been called out of the world. Because when we are functioning in the world, our flesh is from the world. Our, our flesh is of the world. So there are things that make sense to us. But we need to listen to the voice of God and the Spirit dwelling in us. To say, no, I've been called out of the world. So we're going to function differently. So the kingdom of God is upside down. It is countercultural, and it is beautiful. That's the first one, but it's the longest one because it's foundational. And everything else that we're going to talk about kind of harkens back to this upside down idea. The second one is the kingdom of God is inside out. So it's upside down, but it also works inside out. Right? It's heart change that produces outward change. So we value inside-out change, not the appearance of change on the outside. Are you with me? So as a culture, we want to make sure that not only are we saying, hey, we're, we're willing to be upside down, we want to be in line with the kingdom, but we're also saying that as we function in ministry and as we function as a church family, we value inside-out change. We don't want just the appearance of holiness. We want transformed hearts. When Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. He also says in Matthew 7, So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. So sometimes we talk about it in this way, that you can't turn an apple tree into an orange tree just by taking apples off of it and duct taping oranges to it. It's not an orange tree. It's still an apple tree. And yet, so often... In the church, and maybe you've experienced that, maybe you felt that pressure, that we know what we're supposed to look like, but we don't want to be like that. We battle against that, and so we work really hard on the exterior so that it looks right on the outside. We work really hard to make sure any apple that we see growing, we just rip it off and quick duct tape an orange on there just so it looks good. We scrub really hard on the outside. And Jesus is saying, what, what good does that do? Now, it's understandable when we're a part of that culture and you feel that pressure, why we would do that, but he's going after the people who are the gatekeepers and saying, look, if you're going to lead in that, you're a hypocrite. We do not become the kingdom merely like act, by acting like citizens of the kingdom. We don't become joyful like the kingdom just by putting on a happy face and pretending that everything is fine. 
Or one of my favorite examples of this is that if you, if you are in a conversation with a brother or a sister and you think of all these harsh things to say to them, biting your tongue and avoiding saying that doesn't make you holy. Like it might be wise to do that, but that's not transformation. That's not heart change. Stopping yourself from saying something evil and ignoring the heart that produced that thought is not the kingdom way. The kingdom way is to transform the heart because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And that requires a, a level of transparency with one another. It means we want to cultivate a culture where it's okay to not be okay. It's important that we give each other grace and space to, to communicate things, to be able to say things like, you know, I, I don't like what's going on in my heart, but I'm going to verbalize it out loud because I just need to get it out there so that I can shed it and flood it with light. And we need to not then be horrified by one another when those things come out. We need to be able to meet people where they are with it, to be honest in testimonies, to be vulnerable in worship. I mean, imagine we talk about the church as a, as a hospital because Jesus came for the sick. Imagine a hospital where everyone said, I'm fine. And every time the doctor comes around for the rounds and they're like, nope, I'm good. I'm good because I know I'm supposed to be healthy. So I just am. It doesn't work. Like we're here because we need one another and we're growing and we're being transformed from the inside out. And that's why we make the heart the target. That's why we, we want to go after hearts in the preaching and the proclamation of the good news here in, in during worship or in the teaching of our children and our youth. I don't want them to just like learn to tell the truth. I want them to know about the God who's the God of all truth. I don't want my teenagers to just avoid alcohol. We want them to know that, that, it, that with Paul that the influence of the Spirit is so much better and we don't want them to just avoid impurity in relationships. We want them to cultivate a heart that pursues Jesus and finds him fulfilling. Right? We don't want to settle in the church for just avoiding gossip. We want to pursue hearts that desire to build one another up. So when Jesus talks about the kingdom, he says it's upside down. It works inside out. Thirdly, it, it works small to big. So it's upside down, it works inside out, but it grows small to big. In Matthew 13, he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but it, when it was grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Here's the thing. In, my, in ministry, one of the things that I hear the most from people who are wanting to grow and who love Jesus and want to serve and want to be used by God is they'll say, like, I want to do big things for God. Here's the problem with it. What God wants for you to do is the small things. He does the big things. He takes the small things and makes them big. Right? We don't do big things for God. We don't gather huge crowds. We don't save tons of people. We don't do any of that. He does all of that. Our role is to be faithful in the small things, 
There are many other places that he talks about this, but the kingdom grows from small to big. The thing is that if we're honest, like big, splashy things make us feel like we've done something, right? Like you can feel good about it. Like we can, if you ever um, have an event or maybe you've done a training for um, at a workplace or anything like that, like if you get a big response, you get a lot of people to show up, we feel like, okay, we feel like that worked, but we don't know what actually happened, right? We like big, splashy things because they make us feel like something's happening. We like lots of programs because it makes us feel like things are happening. But what we want to go after are the small, faithful things that will grow and bear real fruit. Like Jesus was clear, even with the Pharisees, like don't make a show about your faith. He tells the disciples when he sends them out and they go out and they cast out demons and they heal people and they come back and they're all excited about that. And he said, don't, don't be excited about those things. Be excited that your name is written in the book of life. Something that to them would have felt like a much smaller thing, but it was actually much bigger. That's why like, as a church family, if you have an idea for a ministry or some place that you think you want to serve or you, want, you think the church should be a part of, then our encouragement is always going to be start small. Like if you want to start a, a ministry, that, for example, that cares for a specific group of people, then start by caring for that specific group of people, the person in front of you. And then take somebody with you and then share your story. And then invite somebody else into it. We become so consumed as a church of starting big. Church planting books out there are about starting big. Everything is like big. You've got to make a big splash because if you don't start big, you will never grow big. And I, I hear things like that. Those actual phrases, those words get pushed on people who want to start cha- churches. If you don't start big, you'll never grow big. And I'm just like, that. I feel like Jesus said the opposite. Who are we listening to? Be faithful in the small things. And part of that, guys, is seeing the small things as big things. So interacting with people around the communion table feels small in the moment, but it's big. Reaching out to somebody after a service and praying for them or encouraging them seems small, but it grows into something big. We often think like the world does, that to have an impact, you need to have a title and a platform and a stage. Last week, I was talking to a person who gave me permission to share this story as long as I didn't say their name. Um, I was talking to a person in our church who decided they wanted to just, they wanted to bake over Christmas, bake cookies and whatnot. And she went around and just took them to widows in her neighborhood. So she sat with them, visited with them, and prayed with them. And her response, as I'm sitting there just jaw dropped, her response is like, well, basically it's a small thing. That's the thing. That is kingdom stuff. To go around and say, I'm in this neighborhood. I'm going to go and just take some cookies and sit with people who are lonely and pray with them and, and look for an opportunity to share the gospel. And she says she wants to do that again. She's taken pers- another one with her. And to just do that, like that's the thing. 
We have people every week who are doing small things that feel small, but they grow into big things, and we want to value that. And so whatever we do as a church, we're not afraid to let those things start small. We want to celebrate small acts of faithfulness, small acts of true faithfulness, because they will bring big things. They will grow into big things. Because that's the way of our king, who came to the earth as a baby, born in poverty, not much in the world's eyes that anyone would look on him, but through him all creation being reconciled. Next is everyone's invited. So the kingdom of God is upside down. It works inside out. It grows small to big. And everyone's invited. In Luke 14, Jesus tells a parable about a great banquet. And I'm going to paraphrase it. But he first encourages them to invite people who cannot invite them back. Right? Invite, he says, invite the poor and the crippled and the lame. Invite those people. That that's the people that God invites to the, to the kingdom. Why is that? Because we are all that in God's eyes. Like God doesn't invite anybody to the kingdom who could pay him back. Amen? You've got nothing. I don't care how talented you are. What do you think you can do? Like, well, I feel like God probably want me on his team because I've got this skill. No. What, what, do you, what do you have? What do you have that God's not going to be like, are you serious? I created that in you. I gave that to you. Now, he wants us to serve with him like for the joy of like serving with, us, with our father. But this is all of us. He's like, the kingdom of God is like this. You invite people who can't pay you back. What he's saying is when God invites you into his family, he's not doing it because of what you can do for him. He's doing it because of his goodness and because he wants to share in his joy with you. And, he, and Jesus is saying, so if you throw a banquet, do that. Invite people to share in your joy. Don't invite people who are going to pay you back. And so we want to invite people like we want to invite anybody and everybody. Everybody's invited. I don't care what your background is, what your religious background. I've invited people to church or to share the gospel with them. And I've heard everything in the book. I've heard like, oh, I would, but I'm Catholic. So come on. Like, well, I'm not very religious. That's all right. Neither am I. Come on. Like, well, I don't, you know, I, I, I don't know. Like, I don't really have my act together, you know, or whatever. Like, that's great. I know a lot of people I can introduce you to, right? Like, <laughs> It's just the way it is. We should say, come on, everybody's invited. Well, I never grew up in the church. That's okay. Everybody is invited. The question is just, do you want to come? If you want to come, then you're, you belong here. Everyone's invited. And that sounds wonderful. And we can sit here and we can have this warm, fuzzy feeling of like, yes, amen, everybody's invited. But there's a second part to this parable. Because even the audience, as they're sitting there listening to him, they say, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. What are they saying? They're saying, Jesus, this sounds amazing. Of course, like everybody's going to be blessed. And Jesus actually kind of says, not so fast. He said, you'd be surprised. And he tells them of a master who wants to fill his banquet hall. And he goes out and his servants go out and invite. And people have all kinds of excuses as to why they can't come. One has an ox, one has a wife, one has a field. It doesn't matter. Like they just, they have all these things that they're like, ah, I can't, can't make it. That doesn't really work for me. You know, maybe next month. And so the master says to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. So everyone is invited, but not all will come. 
And that second part is really important for us, and here's why. If we don't understand that, then our desire that everyone would be invited will get perverted into changing and shaping so that everyone, we just identify as everyone being a part of the banquet. And we'll start to change things and water things down and shift the words of of God into something so that we can just say, okay, everyone's invited, that means everybody's in. And so we just like everybody, everybody's a part of God's family because we're just all God's creation and that's dangerous. Because Jesus says, I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. Imagine if the parable, in the parable, the master um, says, oh, hey, go back out to them and see if there's another day that works better for them. Right? Like, or, or, you know what, just let them know that they're with us in spirit, and so, hey, that's close enough. But he doesn't say that. Because the whole response is, do you see Jesus who's inviting you? Do you want to come? And not everyone who's invited will come. I mean, we try to flesh this out of realizing we can't be all things to all people. Paul says that, but that's in a specific context. And we try to be all things to all people in the way that Paul is, relating to different cultures and contexts. But we are not all things to all people in that we just change whatever God's word says or change how we function just to fit in with other people's um, preferences. It's one of the reasons why we're so simple, really, with how we do things. Like, if you want to get connected, if you want to be God's family, if you want to connect with other people, then we tell you, like, fill out a communication card, let us help you, or come to an area lunch. Because we know that having a buffet of options does not create a desire to be connected. In fact, in my experience in church, as much as it has hurt over the years, I have known, I've noticed that if you are looking for a convenient way to connect, then you don't really want to connect. It's not going to last. It's also the reason why we don't try to convince people to stay who want to go. As heartbreaking as it is sometimes, we say, okay, we're going to go out to the highways and the byways and we're going to invite everybody because we want to fill this place up with people who are seeking God, who want to be at the banquet. So when we invite people, it's really important that we invite everyone. I don't care what their background is. I don't care if they rub you the wrong way, if you don't like their personality, if you think they're immoral, if you think they vote the wrong way, if you knew their grandfather, your great-great-grandfather didn't like their great-great-grandmother, like whatever it is, I don't care. Everyone's invited. But when we invite people, we cannot invite them into some kind of generic faith journey that's just shaped around their own personal desires. That would be disingenuous and not helpful. We're calling people, we're inviting them in to seek and discover Jesus. To follow him. To believe in him for the forgiveness of sins. To lay down their life and receive his life. That invitation is extended to everyone. But we don't change that call for anyone. 
the calls to lay down your life so you can find Christ. And we're okay with that because of the last thing, which is it's worth it. The kingdom of God is worth it. Is a heaven, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. My life with Christ changed around this verse. Because it was so much about me performing for God and performing for others and wanting to be good and wanting to believe the right things and wanting to do the right things. Romans 5.8 was critical in understanding that God demonstrates his love for me and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So I started to see that of like receiving God's grace and his forgiveness and knowing that that's not dependent on my worthiness, but his worthiness. But this verse changed the whole directory, the, the whole direction and trajectory of my ministry. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. And what this did for me was realize I'd spent so much of my life trying to convince people to follow Jesus, to convince them that Jesus is worth it. And I finally realized, I can't. I can't. The kingdom of heaven is a treasure hidden in a field. You either see it as a treasure so valuable that you're willing to give up anything and everything, or you see it as a bunch of junk. And that will determine whether you follow him or not. Not anything that I say, not any programs that we have. If it's a treasure hidden in a field, it's worth anything. And so that's why here, like one of the ways we try to play that out is we make big asks when they matter. And we don't make big asks when it's not about the kingdom. This is actually in some ways a really easy church to be involved with in the fact that we don't have a ton of programs. We don't, there's not a million things for you to volunteer in and fill your week up with. But it's difficult in that we expect our family to function as family. And so, for example, everyone who's physically able and can pass a background check, we say we expect you to help with the kids a couple times a year. Because those are your spiritual family. Those are your kids. We expect every member of our family to help with financial support. We believe that every member is a missionary, and so we want to encourage you to follow Jesus in your neighborhoods, in your workplaces. We believe the family is multi-generational, and so we have noisy kids and slow-moving grandparents and energetic young adults who know everything about life and the worn-out middle-aged adults that they become. Right? We believe that communion is meant to be done in community, communing with Jesus with one another. And so we take 10 to 15 minutes in the middle of the service. Like We, we have a longer service because we say it's worth it. We don't feel badly about any of those things because it's worth it. And one of the mistakes that churches try to make is we try to make the kingdom look more beautiful to people who don't see it. And hold on to this. So we look at it and we say, okay, I want to make the kingdom look beautiful to someone who doesn't see it. And in so doing, I don't convince them, but I also hide the beauty of it to people who do see it. Does that make sense? It's like a pig. Probably need more explanation than that. Some of you 
see a big pig at the fair, at the county fair or in a farm lot, and you think, that pig's beautiful. That pig is, like, that pig will feed a bunch of people. Look at how big that pig is. It's beautiful. Now, others of you would look at a pig and think, gross. Look at that pig. So maybe you're familiar with the phrase, putting lipstick on a pig. So you might say to the person who looks at that pig, is like, ew, gross. You're like, no, 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 hold on. Let me, let me try something. And you put lipstick on it. It doesn't convince that person. And the person who did see it as beautiful looks at it and goes, why'd you ruin that pig? That pig was awesome. Why are you putting lipstick on it? And this happens in the church. People say, oh, I don't, you know, I got, my life is full. And like, I, you know, yeah, I'd like to do something. I'd like to go to church. I'd like to get involved or whatever. But, you know, it'd be really great is if you had this thing that's very specific in the time that I want and the thing that I want and everything, that would be awesome. And so we make all these, we try really hard to do that and make it like, oh, no, no, it's really good. Like, you know, when you follow God, your life gets better. When you follow God, like you get to do all these things that you want to do when you follow Jesus. And meanwhile, the person whose life has been totally transformed by Jesus and is looking at it and saying, I want to lay my life down. They look at that and they say, well, that's not beautiful. And the other person says like, oh, it might be entertaining for a little bit, but then they're gone. And you've lost both. So that's why I feel like our calling and the best thing that we can do is just to pursue Jesus passionately and fully and to not trump up things to keep ourselves entertained or to make it look like we're busy, but to just say, listen, go and love your neighbor. Go into the prisons. Support foster families. Read the Bible with one another. The actual word of God. Get together and do that. Go together and share the gospel. Go serve at the homeless shelter. Go. Go. And then rally together and share and rejoice in what God is doing and worship together and sing your guts out and take communion together and let it all look weird to the world and not make sense. But what I believe is that the people who hear that invitation to that banquet and says, ah, oh, that's a treasure in a field, they will come because our God has called them. That's the culture we want to cultivate. The culture that is like the kingdom that Jesus laid out. And it may seem impossible, and if it were up to us, it would be, because our flesh will keep pulling at us. We'll want to do things in a way that makes sense to us. We'll want to focus on cleaning the outside of the cup instead of the inside, because that's just easier. We'll want to do big things for God, and we'll get bored with and not see the value of the small things and wish that we could do something more. And if we're honest, we're going to be fine with everyone being invited, as long as I don't have to sit by them or have community with them. And we'll often, our hearts, our flesh, will pull us and we'll see the kingdom as somewhat of a burden that keeps us from doing the things that we really want. But in Christ, we've been given new minds and new hearts. In Christ, we are set free from these mindsets. And in Christ, we can see the beauty of an upside-down kingdom. The beauty of it working from the inside out. 
the beauty of the small things that grow into big things. The beauty of welcoming in the outcast because he welcomed in us in as outcasts and loved us. Because it's worth it. He's worth it. Let's pray. Father, even those of us in here who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit and have been given new eyes to see, we still don't see as we should. We see through a veil dimly. Even for those in this room who have seen and tasted that you are good, we still taste faintly. Even for those of us in this room who believe, we are still scarred by unbelief. So Lord, help us. Help us, God, to not only be your family on mission, but to also work hard here to till the soil and to turn it over and to create a healthy environment where we value the things that you declared about the kingdom, where we say we are kingdom people, and as kingdom people, we live differently. Lord, help us to see the beauty of that. Help us to not shy away from the calling, and Lord, let us invite everyone. Lord, I pray right now you would bring into our hearts and minds people that you know that you are calling us to go out to invite, into the byways and the highways and everywhere, to invite everybody that they may see your glory. Because that is who we were. We were in the highways and the byways. While we were yet sinners, you died for us. You made us your own, turning rebels into sons and daughters, turning the poor into heirs of the kingdom, giving us new minds and new hearts and new eyes. So Lord, let us live in the fullness of that identity and call everyone to join us in it. Pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.